Hi, everyone, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, joined by Scout Pomeranian. It is close to her food time, so she may start barking at any moment. I, I think some people do root for that in this show, um, but that's okay. Let's see. So today we're going to discuss kind of where we're at with gene therapy. This is where we are using technology that we've harnessed, such as DNA plasmids, you know, viral vectors, to insert genes that some people might not have. And in this case, this is a case where patients do not have a gene that produces a key, basically, nervous system protein. Okay. The way that I actually came across these ideas was a journal club for my class. And one of my students presented this, and I thought this was a really really well done and it led to a great discussion so I wanted to share it with as many people as I could. The paper that most of this is going to or most of this discussion is going to cover is called Single Dose Gene Replacement Therapy for Spinal Musculature Atrophy by Mendel et al. So, it's a lot of authors. Brian K. Kaspar is the last last author. So, SMA or spinal muscular atrophy type 1 is this progressive monogenic motor neuron disease and it onsets at infancy. And the big reason this is so tough is that this is a gene that when you have the two recessive disease-causing copies, both of the recessive copies, they don't work when constructing motor neurons in humans. That means that when you're born with two of these copies, so you're double recessive, the gene has fated you not to properly develop the basically the motor neuron physiology. And thus, patients with this disease not only usually don't, you know, make it past, you know, maybe even a year, you don't usually see the characteristic behaviors that you would see in an infant. And so it's a very troubling, faded, bad thing. So the idea is that we can use the technology we have to insert the dominant regular gene into the right cells, these motor neurons, and that gene will cause those motor neurons to come back to life. And once they have the proper protein gene products that we're giving them, basically, they can have that function. So this, this technology has actually been tried before. Gene therapy has. Um, notably, actually, in the University of Minnesota a couple times back in the early 2000s. But it's never caught on. And we'll kind of talk about why that was and why it kind of got, it kind of got put at the back burner for a while because of some of the failures that were encountered in those early times. So if you're born without two copies of a single gene and we want to insert one, we can defeat faded genetic diseases. Now keep in mind, because I'll ask you this at the end, what are the implications here if we succeed in this process, a process where we can fundamentally add genes to people? That's where, you know, we can open this big bread box of possibilities. And I want you to compare that to CRISPR, which is, remember, that's just editing a gene. Okay, so in this disease, the mutation that causes the recessive allele is, I'm pretty sure it's just a single exon missense mutation. I should check on that. So technically, yeah, I think CRISPR is actually in the game here. But remember, when you CRISPR a human embryo, you break all the UN rules. Okay, so like our class had a big CRISPR set um, to do for molecular biology this year. And I had to sign this big contract from the UN that said this will not be used on a human embryo. Because as we saw... We're not ready for that yet. And we also brought this, this point up as we were talking about gene therapy and the fact that this is, this is working in this case, in this paper, what we go through. Technology, and especially in biology and medicine, is accelerating at its rate of progress. And we need to make sure as scientists, medical professionals, anybody else, that we are also keeping up with that acceleration and maybe taking a bigger role in the 
kind of the meaning behind the work that we do, the right and wrong behind it, how it should be used, you know, are there limits to certain things? Scientists have to kind of step away from that empiricism that has defined us for generations and maybe take a stronger role in leading the idea and the discussions behind what we're doing. So keep that in mind with something this powerful. So what gene therapy does is essentially we can take a vector. So remember that a vector is a circular piece of DNA that contains genes to activate a couple target genes. And, you know, some of these genes that it's going to have in it will actually become proteins that will cut and then paste in the target gene that we want. So the SMA working gene in this case into the host genome. So you're going to insert a full working gene right into the host genome. So adenoviruses are great at this. We've used the HIV virus for this as well, mainly just a dead one, basically, just one that integrates, not one that actually goes on and infects. So what this can give people is working copies of genes that they were not born with. And so this is a huge deal. We tried gene therapy, like I said, about decade, decade and a half ago. There were many problems that we started to run into. We thought that we were going to, you know, we really thought we got ahead of ourselves. One of the first issues was some of these gene therapies would add this gene to every single cell. In this case with the SMA gene, you only want to be adding this to the proper neuron, these motor neuron cells. You don't want to be adding an SMA gene in the middle of liver cells, intestine cells, you know, all over the body. So luckily, the virus that we have now that we're using to insert this is highly targeted with cell surface receptors that are going to hook on to the cell surface receptors of your motor neurons. Then they're going to insert the proper SMA gene. So that's how we fix targeting. Integration's tough. So remember that viruses usually integrate just randomly. There are some viruses that find a specific spot and will cut and paste their DNA into there. Integration still means that even if this gets into a motor neuron, sometimes you're going to cut and paste right in the middle of another important gene, blow that gene up, and that motor neuron might go down because of that. So believe that's something that we have a little bit more difficult of a time controlling, but at the end of the day, most of the genome is a good place for insertion. You know, like 90% is non-coding. So usually wherever you integrate is going to be okay, but not all the time. Now, the biggest one, and this is the one that still to this day is likely what causes therapies like this to not be really long lasting is the immune system. When you send in a virus to the body, especially even an infant human body, the immune system will activate in the presence of virus. It'll activate in the presence of circular DNA because circular DNA is a characteristic of bacteria that does not belong there. Your immune system, even from this early age, is educated to attack things that do not, do not look like self. Okay, so the, the problem here, really what happens is that although this therapy, and we'll see, it does, it does, you know, allow patients to reach milestones of time and behaviors that we couldn't reach before, eventually the immune adaptive response, like we talked about, B cells, antibodies, you start to see antibodies against the viral therapy itself. And then you start to see the body gradually reject the therapy as though it is a pathogen, unfortunately. So if we can perhaps modulate that, then we would start making some really long-term progress, maybe get to the point where if infant development finishes, this is the type of therapy that could carry on a human child further than the infant stage, and then maybe the physiology of this disease could change, and we would have new tools against it, right? But right now, the immune system presents a devastating barrier because it will usually 
find these genetic sequences, treat them like pathogen and obliterate everything. Your immune system, like I've said, very powerful, can sometimes cause a lot more damage than help in this case. So one of the other things that's interesting, and the Supreme Court did actually rule on this. So I think I believe it's Novartis that owns this, you know, this adenovirus therapy, basically, right? And I believe that the Supreme Court did say, okay, nobody technically owns the sequence of a gene. Think about that. Who owns the rights to the nucleotide information sequence that makes the SMA1 gene? So in this case, this, you know, this drug, Zymogen, is a collection of different, you know, properties and, and other genes and other activation things. And at the end of the day, nobody can really own a gene in that case. And that's what the Supreme Court found as well. So again, that's kind of the conversation of it's it's hopeful someday that scientists will play a role in decisions like that. I'm not saying that you know the Supreme Court is fallible in in this case because they're they're not trained in the in this specific background, but at the same time, I do hope that you know science and medicine can start taking more of those uh, meaning discussions to that to that highest level to get together. The other and the big one that even no matter what is going to happen here, and this this is all happening. All I should have mentioned too the the ten years ago. All these problems, they, it, they were too much to handle for gene therapy, so that's why we kind of shut things down. But recently, we have gotten a better hold on things. That's why we are doing clinical trials like Mendel 2017 right here, where we are doing gene therapy again. But the biggest thing is cost. Zymogen, so this drug, quote-unquote, again, a living drug, because it's a virus, essentially, that's going in and giving you a gene, this will cost patients anywhere between two and three million for a full treatment. The first treatment being $700,000, given that you have to make the virus, put it in the patient, and then boosting treatments are about $300,000 each. Now, the benefit of this is that for the 20 month mark, which is a big, like kind of a landmark for this disease of can an infant make it that far, usually that number is 8%. With this viral vector therapy, you make that landmark 100% of the time, at least in their cohort. So that is substantial progress in a disease that, again, it's faded. We don't have therapies for this besides really getting in and using genetics, using living things. If you, you know, consider virus a living thing and going in and modulating what was the faded blueprint of an, of an organism, a human being in this case. So it makes you, it definitely makes you think that may, where we're going with medicine is going to, again, demand some serious conversations about how we make this, you know, hopefully for everybody. And I say hopefully because I don't, you know, I don't know enough about what it, you know, what it goes into to make this something that could possibly maybe someday be affordable to any patient that needs it. Now you got to remember too, and we've we've maybe talked a little bit about about pharmaceuticals, but remember this is a massive development. You know, there, there's a lot that goes into a development of something like this. I I sometimes am probably too simplistic about like, yep, you got a, a vector with genes in it, and it's a virus that's going to insert its genes. It is much more tailored than that, and so that money isn't going to nowhere. But at the same time, hopefully we can find creative solutions to bring this out right now. So right now, I believe there's a lottery system for parents that do want this drug that they can they can have some of that recouped, for example. But again, this actually kind of reminds me of a story that is kind of indicative of where we're going with medicine, which 
I'd ask you a question right now, if you are interested in medicine, is it going to be better to treat a patient that is presenting symptoms right now and try and get them better? Or is it better to know and predict that a patient will have something occur, treat it beforehand so it never occurs and symptoms never occur? Something like pre-medicine, right? Predictive medicine. That's where we're going. That's where medicine is going to take us. So when Angelina Jolie, for example, had her BRCA gene, one of the tumor suppressor genes that is involved with breast cancer, sequenced and found that one of her two copies was a mutant copy, meaning that she only had to lose one for you know, a 70% chance at developing the cancer, she made that choice to have a mastectomy. Now, it's not my call to tell anybody what to do with their body, how to treat things, but she made that call and she made the call to promote screening, which is good. Absolutely. Now, when they made that call, a genetic screen for, you know, a, you know, a medical genetic screen was about $3,000. Okay. Insurances at this point do not cover predictive medicine. And that's where the challenge is right now, is that a lot of predictive medicine, at least when you come into genomic predictive medicine, is not something that's mainstream enough to be taken care of by an insurance or covered in that case. I, I don't know the details of every plan, obviously, but, this, but the main societal change that will happen because of that is people that will have access to predictive medicine will have access to not only better care, they just won't have to spend you know, the same symptomatic care that people that don't have access to predictive healthcare and genomic healthcare that they will have to spend. And you will start eventually splitting people who can and can't have that access to basically, you know, things like this, the augmentation of a genome, or even at least, at the least, the sequencing and the detection of certain variants in a genome. You know, for example, even a 23andMe is a very, you know, it's a big privilege to be able to have $150 and send it and get some results back, even if most of those results in 23andMe are not medical, you know, advice, because the, you know, they're, they're detecting small variants with less certainty than a medical test would. So as medicine shifts toward a predictive health, keep the idea of genomics and keep thinking of creative ideas to bring that mainstream and make that accessible. Because that is going to be important, and that is going to be important for humanity to start transitioning towards that style of medicine. And I think that we are making a lot of progress in that. Like, obviously, it's definitely not a doomsday thing where every, you know, half of us are going to get left behind or something. It's just definitely something to keep in mind. So the last thing that I wanted to kind of talk about was the fact that we can do this for SMA. We can give infants a gene and have it work and have their cells recover because of the presence of a gene they were not born with, Right. Now, this is different because these infants, and even let's say that these infants would be able to, let's, you know, pass on this, or get to the age where they could pass on genetics, they won't ever pass on this change. They won't pass on the cut and paste gene because their haploid sex cells will not carry this gene. When you CRISPR a human embryo with a single cell, change a couple nucleotides, and you have a new gene, like supposedly those twins in China, they will pass that on forever. They are the first genetically modified humans and some people, some anthropologists would call them a new species, right? Because we've completely changed the blueprint of a human genome to that which has never been evolved or selected or anything. Now, you could also make the argument that humans have long since not really been 
I don't know, selected for or against in the strict sense of ecology evolution, but that's a whole nother discussion. What I, what I definitely want to leave you with is that the augmentation of our genome is possible. Even at the infant stage, at the adult stage, adolescence, we are getting very close to, and by very close, maybe I mean a century, but still, um, we are getting very close to inserting genes at the right time in the right cells for the right thing. Imagine, for example, if you could insert a gene that could make your immune system, you know, target a specific virus, for example, that would help. But at the same time, we have a long way to go. And there is a lot of empirical data to still gain from, you know, these new technologies. But like I said, they're evolving and they're changing and they're competing so, so greatly. We need to be ready for when people start saying, we actually, we need these now. You know, we do want this, you know, to be the future of medicine. And so being able to augment what our cells can already do, give us certain genes, you know, this can't, this podcast is about cancer and genomics. A great example of gene therapy for cancer would be, say you lost two copies of that TP53 mutation. If you just flood, you know, your lymph, so like lymph, lymphatic nodes, B cells, if you flood them with a virus that, it, that will hook onto CD19 or CD20, which are big markers on the surface of B cells and inserts, you know, a very good working copy of DNA that will cause DNA, RNA to protein of TP53 to show up in a lot of these cancer cells and cause them to undergo apoptosis like they normally should have, that'd be amazing. I think that there are several challenges with that application, namely that, you know, you'd eventually end up with a few cells that didn't accept the virus and now they're the ones making up the population, et cetera, et cetera. And we're down the same road as we are with any small molecule or immunotherapy that didn't completely erase the sub, you know, the pre- the cancer stem cells, quote unquote, and the attacking tumor. So think about what's important to you and your interests in biology and think about what it could mean if you could augment the genome of something and you could insert new genes, even genes that maybe would turn others off or be master regulators that could completely change the organism from an epigenetic level. They'd be really excited. So I think that's it. This was kind of a kind of a blitz episode, but it was super fun to talk about and this was a very cool application of, you know, and crossover between genetics, medicine, and it also introduces you to that, that discussion of access and cost and things like that. So I hope you enjoyed. Bye. Stay safe.